dare to know. This phrase became famous when it was used by the German philosopher Immanuel Kant as he sought to describe the age of the Enlightenment. <clears throat> the age of the Enlightenment was an uh, intellectual and philosophical movement uh, that really dominated the world of ideas through the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe. It is said by many to have begun uh, with a certain René Descartes. René Descartes was a uh, French philosopher, mathematician, scientist. And he wanted to know that which was beyond all doubt. And to do so, he attempted to doubt everything that could be doubted, discard it, and so be left with only that which is certain. And for René, not even water was necessarily wet because he couldn't even trust his senses. Water might not even be a thing. The universe might not even be a thing. And so his thought progressed until one day he sat down and he wrote, I am constrained to admit that nothing that I formerly believed to be true, I cannot now doubt. And only some time after this did he achieve uh, what was for him a breakthrough. The very doubts that he had, they established one thing for him, namely that he is, because if he was not, he could not doubt. And so he uttered the now famous phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And having for himself convinced himself that he did exist, he then proceeded from there to try and argue for the existence of God and for a material universe uh, proceeding from the certainty of his own existence, which somehow justified the other two. And while René didn't want to do away with the idea of God, he had uh, nevertheless opened a can of worms and, and the school of thought that proceeded questioned and doubted everything. Um, and in the age of the Enlightenment or the age of reason, nothing was certain unless it could be demonstrated from reason or logic or empirical science. By the end of the age of reason, um, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, wrote the words, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Brothers and sisters, we believe that God is alive. We killed him, we can credit Nietzsche with getting that much right, but for us, God is very much alive. And as we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, a first century account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, what has been stressed time and time again is, is the authority of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus has authority over demons. He has authority over sickness. He tells men to come and they come. He tells waves to stop and they stop. He teaches with authority. He forgives sins. He raises the dead. Jesus is presented to us as the King of, kin, the King of kings and his authority is unmatched. I want to ask you the question, does the authority of Jesus still stand in the age of reason or have the siege towers of intellectual dissent broken down the walls of the kingdom? Let's start with prayer. Father of all wisdom, creator of light and reason, help us to understand and apply your word. We ask that you be at work this morning through your Holy Spirit to sanctify us in truth. Amen.
We pick up the story where Steve left off two weeks ago. Jesus, the preacher from rural Galilee, accompanied by his workaday, undistinguished disciples, they enter Jerusalem. This is the political capital. This is the cultural capital. This is the spiritual, theological, intellectual capital of the country. Jerusalem is a place of great learning. It is a place of great scholars. Jerusalem is where the Sanhedrin sit. The Sanhedrin was a very powerful uh, senate of sorts, um, the highest court in the land under the Romans. And it was composed of, of prominent Sadducees and priests and Pharisees and elders and scribes. Into this context walks the religious misfit, Jesus of Nazareth, son of a carpenter. On the first day, he surveys the situation. On the second day, he takes definitive action. He makes a whip and he drives the merchants out of the area of the temple that was reserved for the Gentiles. And with his tongue no less searing than his whip, he chastises the religious authorities for allowing such a desecration. And the religious authorities go away and begin to plot his destruction. Many times in Christian history, Christianity has been seen as nothing more than a crude disturbance to the current system and uh, something that needs to be removed. But Jesus leaves Jerusalem on that second day, apparently uh, unchallenged largely. The schemes of the priests were still under development. But on the third day, as we read now in this passage, as Jesus enters the city, the battle lines are drawn up. The rulers can't drag him off to the dungeon, but they can play a game of strategy to debase him, to rob him of his popularity, to rob him of moral authority, to ridicule and deride him. Have you ever felt the brunt of a similar attack? Will the authority of Jesus fall to intellectual assassination? The Jerusalem authorities were a mixed group. They came from various religio-political factions, but now they band together to repel Jesus. There are four clear sections to today's scripture passage. Mark eleven twenty-seven to thirty-three details his first confrontation. Forgot the slideshow. Is it done? Here we are. Uh, Mark eleven twenty seven to thirty three details his first confrontation, a frontal assault from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Mark twelve one to twelve contains a parable Jesus taught by way of a response to the previous encounter. Mark twelve thirteen to seventeen um, <clears throat> details the Pharisees and the Herodians as they deploy a rather tactical uh, assault on Jesus. And finally, in Mark twelve eighteen to 27, we see the Sadducees attempt to go it alone to dethrone the king. I'm going to cover these sections, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, um, in the following order, 1, 4, 3, 2. I emailed my slides through to Matt, and who thought I'd made a typo and, and carefully rearranged them. And, uh, his, <laughs> and many thanks, Matt, because he's, he's um, saved me from a lot of mishaps previously. We're going to start with section 1, so let's begin now. Have you ever tried to air your opinion in the secular sphere only to be disqualified the moment you said the word God? Whether it's abortion or gender ethics or euthanasia, any reference to your faith and your arguments are immediately considered invalid. 
And we must ask the question, where is our authority on these topics if it is not from God? Well, Jesus finds himself in a similar situation, but for him the stakes are higher. He's rightly rebuked his opponents on the way they have desecrated what is sacred. And now they ask him, what authority do you have? We know the answer to this question. From the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the answer has been clear. Uh, Reading from Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And immediately as we continue reading, we're introduced to the herald, John the Baptist, whose ministry was to go before the Messiah and announce his coming. And he identifies Jesus as the promised one, the one all Israel had been waiting for. And he baptizes Jesus and immediately the heavens are torn apart and the dove, the spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove and the voice cries out from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But for Jesus now to answer their question, to reveal his deity as the source of his authority, well, not only will his answer be deemed invalid, but so too will his life be deemed invalid. For claiming to be divine, Jesus is later condemned to death and crucified. So what does Jesus do? It appears as though Jesus dodges the question by asking an equally thorny question of the authorities. What do you guys think of John the Baptist? The rulers didn't approve of the now-deceased John, but the people held him to be a prophet. But Jesus doesn't ask, what do you think of John? But he asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? The chief aim of John the Baptist was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah and to ready the people for such. His ministry reaches its climax when he baptizes Jesus, and Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. When Jesus answers, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man, he's not evading their potentially incriminating question. No, he directs them to the answer, but in such a way that they now stand to risk the repercussions of their answers if they continue to reject God's revelation. The authorities had witnessed the ministry of John, John's baptism was clearly from heaven, and if it was from heaven, the ministry of Jesus, which was inaugurated with the baptism of John, which was endorsed by the baptism of John, then the ministry of Jesus is clearly from heaven also. So how will these supposed intellectual giants respond to the demonstrable work of God? They respond with a confession of their own ignorance. They discuss it among themselves, not to arrive at the right answer, but to arrive at the expedient answer. And then when they realise they're stuck in between a rock and a hard place, not wishing to endorse Jesus and not wishing to disendorse John and incur the backlash from the people, they settle with the answer, we don't know. To confess true ignorance is admirable. But what we see here is a construction of ignorance to conceal cowardice. The proof was in. Jesus was the Messiah. His ministry had displayed the anointing of God. It had been powerful. It had been public. Only a few days prior, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. But the chief priests don't accept the evidence. They don't want to give an answer. They seek to conceal the evidence. We read in the Gospel of John that they even plot that they might kill Lazarus, the resurrected Lazarus, to further hide 
and stifle faith in Jesus. In this first encounter, we see the authority of Jesus untarnished by the assault of the intellectuals. In the end, the religious authorities are forced to choose between accepting the lordship of Jesus, Jesus Christ um, the King, or retreating into agnosticism, a defense of ignorance. And these guys, who so pride themselves on their knowledge, choose ignorance. We learn something from this first encounter. Don't buy the lie that peddles doubt and agnosticism as the mature approach to religion. More and more we are fed this lie that tells us it is both arrogant and stupid to claim anything to be certain in the realm of religion. Agnosticism is, is, describes the, the belief um, where someone will believe that there is a God or could be a God, but it is impossible to know anything about him with any certainty. And it's becoming more and more popular today. Uncertainty is an easy fallback for someone who, like the chief priests here, does not want to accept the evidence for the authority of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to buy it. Moving on to Jesus and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a rather distinct religious faction, so uh, covering verses 18 to 27 if you're following along. From the little we know about them, it appears that they were a highly educated, almost aristocratic group of people. Uh, They were very powerful and they dominated both the priesthood and the Sanhedrin. Uh, Interestingly, they accepted only the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as authoritative And they didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in resurrection to eternal life. Resurrection is not a major theme of the Old Testament, but it is explicitly mentioned on occasions in the prophets and the Psalms. This, however, doesn't bear any weight with them because they don't accept these later books. To attempt to discredit the idea of a resurrection, the Sadducees ask what is presumably a theoretical example of a woman who is married to multiple different brothers through the practice known as leveret marriage, whereby should a woman die childless, um, the brother-in-law would marry her, would be obliged to marry her in order to raise up offspring. The now redundant practice is uh, described in Deuteronomy 25, and the purpose of the custom was both to provide a lineage for the deceased brother and presumably also to care for the widow who would now come under the protection and care of the brother-in-law and would be able to hope that she might yet have children who would be able to care for her in her old age. And so they pose the question, if a woman should end up marrying, sequentially married to seven brothers, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? At first, this attack seems a pedantic squabble over divergent doctrines, but the Sadducees have done their homework. In the message of Jesus and the theology of the church, resurrection is indispensable. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, uh, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the Sadducees can discredit resurrection it will be a knockout blow to Jesus. But Jesus destroys their objection and then he moves to the offensive. The Sadducees have fallen into error because they do not comprehend that God, the all-powerful, can exceed the categories of their present understanding. 
The Sadducees, it, uh, the Sadducees, it seems, consider that a resurrected state, something they don't believe in, would nevertheless be similar to the present order of things and would perpetuate the existing marital bonds. Jesus does not shy away from debating this smarty-pants brigade. First, he says, they're in error because they do not know the scriptures. To an outsider, this would be like your local plumber telling the Pope that he doesn't know anything about Catholicism. Second, they're in error because they do not know the power of God. God can operate outside the realm of their understanding, and the resurrection will be vastly different to that which they envisage and then dismiss. Jesus tells them that the resurrected state will be similar to that of the angels in a way, and that marriage will cease to exist. And as to the scriptures and the doctrine of the resurrection, while the resurrection is explicit in the prophets, Jesus turns to the Torah, the Torah that the Sadducees so much loved. In Exodus 3.6, Jesus shows, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He was their God, yes, but he continues to be so. And as God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, well, then even the Torah teaches the resurrection. Now, this passage, aside from contributing to, um, from, from affirming and explaining the resurrection um, and contributing to a swath of biblical teaching on such, it has a lot to teach us today regarding biblical interpretation. I'm not going to equate the Sadducees with the modern liberal theologians. That would be going a step too far. Um, but they have made the same mistake that modern liberal theologians now epitomise. Theological liberalism markets itself as intelligent, progressive Christianity, a Christianity indeed born out of the age of reason and informed by science. But in reality, it is a miserable retreat by those who do not know the scriptures, albeit they might study them very hard, and importantly, they do not know the power of God. I was talking with a patient at the hospital um, the topic turned to religion. He identified as a Christian. We, weren't, we didn't seem to be quite on the same wavelength. Turned out he actually had a PhD in religion. And soon, with a mild note of condescension, he was explaining the time that Jesus walked on the water to me. And it went something like this. There was a big sandbank, you see, a big sandbank that went out into the lake. And Jesus was walking along it. It was dark. And Jesus was walking along it. He wasn't walking along the water. No one can do that. No, he's walking along the sandbank. And he happened to intersect the path of the boat at the same time as the boat happened to arrive at the shore. And the miracle is that he stilled the storm in the disciples' hearts. And he gave credit for this interpretation to an a influential American bishop, Bishop Spong. Um, and then he continued... And the miracle today still is that Jesus can still the storm in your heart. And the storm in my heart was indeed raging, for this was the most preposterous interpretation I had ever heard. But when you empty God of his authority, when you take out the supernatural, this interpretation, inept as it is, is probably the best thing you've got. Theological liberalism assumes the Bible to be full of errors, but claims that the accuracy of the Bible is irrelevant. It is about the morals, they say. 
But Jesus here teaches the reality of the resurrection based on the tense of a single verb in a single verse in one of the five oldest books in the Bible. If we are to believe in Jesus, we are to believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures just as he did. Theological liberalism claims that the miracles in the Bible can no longer be claimed to be supernatural. Like the Sadducees, they do not know the power of God which supersedes the categories of their limited understanding. And for the liberals, this is science. And this is a tragedy. We might pause and we might pray for these guys. Father, we want to pray for those today who have been led astray by deceitful theories of men which question your existence and empty you of power. Help us to love them and help us to put aside any whim of pride as we seek their edification. Ultimately, we pray that you might redeem them from their errors, that you might bring them back to yourself, that you might show them your power. Amen. There is much more that we can say from this passage. Uh, We will move on, but before we move on, can I stress, when you read the word, accept it, as it is, and allow the power of God to exceed the confines of your own understanding. Theological liberalism is so widespread today, uh, if you haven't already encountered it, you likely will, in some form, greater or lesser. It is heretical, don't go there. Ultimately, it empties God of his divinity. To quote the aforementioned Bishop Spong, God is not a noun that demands to be defined, God is a verb that invites us to live, to love, and to be. That's poetic nonsense, and it's atheism. We must know the power of God. So Jesus also has a, um, a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Herodians, as outlined in verses 13 to 17. These guys execute a very tactical assault. First, they attempt to butter Jesus up with some flattery. You don't care who someone is, do you, Jesus? You tell it straight. And then they pull the trigger. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, Jesus has two obvious options. Uh, Firstly, he could flare with nationalistic zeal, you know, dipped in religious overtones, and he could declare... You know, there is no king but God. I do not accept this pagan Gentile overlord. I will not pay taxes to Caesar. I refuse on principle. That would have made him very popular for about 30 minutes until the Romans turned up to drag him off to a fate of their choosing. Alternatively, he can endorse the the Romans and their taxation system, and that would have made him very unpopular. Essentially, he's, he's got a choice between losing face and potentially losing his whole head. I've lost my place. But again, the authority of Jesus isn't rocked. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. And if indeed the Roman overlords truly posed an impediment to his purposes, he would have already sorted it out. As it is, his answer betrays the fact that the sovereign God has permitted Roman occupation and Jesus won't be lured into uh, foolishly opposing it. Taking a coin, Jesus asks, whose image is this? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus is not led astray by foolish bravado. Now, Australians, we almost worship foolish bravado, and we love a rebel. Uh, 
We glorify the Eureka Stockade and we magnify Ned Kelly. And there's a caution in this passage that we never allow our faith to be hijacked for an irrelevant crusade. Much as the Pharisees and the Herodians are attempting to hijack the ministry of Jesus, the authority of Jesus will not be uh, manipulated and distracted, but Jesus seeks to usher in the kingdom of God, and this too must be our aim. This is not to say that the kingdom of God is not concerned uh, with the transformation of society. True religion, as we read in James 1.27, commands us to look after orphans and widows in their sufferings, and The last 2,000 years of history have been littered with beautiful examples of the way that Christianity has transformed society. We only need to think uh, to the abolition of slavery in Britain, which came about through a devout group of Christians, a small group of Christians who were motivated by their religious convictions. Um, But we are cautioned about Christianity being hijacked, and we remember that, unfortunately, many a times others tried to harness Christianity to garner support for the practice of slavery. Don't let anyone hijack your faith for ignoble ends. Now, returning to what Jesus says here, see, the sting, the really important part, the sting is in the tail of his answer. What does he go on to say then? And give to God the things that are God's. The coin is made by Caesar in the image of Caesar. It belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. But what bears the image of God? What is the coin that is minted in his image? I assume most of you know the answer. We, we are made in the image of God. We are the coin that he has minted in his own image. You want to contribute to society, pay your taxes. You want to give to God, your taxes don't cut it. You need to give him your very self your love, your worship, your devotion, because you are his, you belong to him. As we look at these passages which talk about the authority of Jesus, there are many who question the authority of Jesus. There are some who accept the authority of Jesus but refuse to allow it to encompass their personal lives. It is not enough to merely acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and is invested with all authority. We need to remember that that extends to us. Church history suggests that Mark initially wrote his gospel to encourage the Christians in Rome who were at that time being suffering uh, Nero's insanities and and his unjust persecutions. Some of these Christians would be led to their deaths because while they paid their taxes, they would not give so much as a pinch of incense to the statue of the emperor. Why? Why? because they belonged to God and their worship belonged to God and they had given themselves wholly to God and to worship anything else would be to rob God of what was rightfully his, give to God what is God's, pay homage to the statue? No, they gave to God the things that are God's, even to the point of death. Are you giving to God what is God's? Are you giving him your very self? So Jesus destroys the doubters. He destroys those who would seek to empty God of his power. He claims authority and his authority is untarnished by these 
and his authority extends to us. We need to now consider the parable he taught. In all three confrontations, Jesus has trounced his opponents. But we don't see any of the religious authorities defecting from their ranks and joining the ranks of Jesus Christ. They were supposed to be the guides that would lead people to God, but now God turns up and they seek to kill him. Why? Jesus tells a parable of a landowner who carefully invests himself in a vineyard and he provides everything that is required for this vineyard to produce fruit. He then leases it to tenants to do the work. Uh, to work the land, sorry. When harvest comes, he sends servants to his vineyard to collect some of his produce. Multiple servants are mistreated, some are killed. Finally, the son is sent, and the son too is killed. When Jesus, the son of a carpenter, enters the temple that morning, he's confronted by the religious rulers, and they ask, what authority do you have? Jesus alludes, as we saw, to his divine authority verified through the ministry of John the Baptist. Now Jesus, the Son of God, turns the tables and asks in return, what authority do you have? The meaning of the parable would have been clear to the first century Jew. The vine was Israel and the religious authorities were the tenants entrusted to cultivate its fruit, but they have abused the vineyard to their own ends. They have rejected those sent by God in times past, even at times murdering the prophets. And now the Son has come. As one author puts it, the Son goes as the Father's representative with the Father's authority to the Father's property to claim the Father's due. What authority do the tenants have? But they are going to reject him. Why? It is not because they do not recognize his authority, but because they do not want to submit to his authority. The Jerusalem rulers are the tenants of Israel, but now the son has arrived, and they do not want to surrender their vineyard, and so they will kill him. And how true is that today? The thought is that if humanity can kill God, then humanity can become God. The serpent has now for thousands of years tempted us thus. He told Eve, you will become like God. And so Eve ate the apple. So the men of the plain built the Tower of Babel. So the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death. And so today, we have attempted to rationalize God out of the universe. We explain our own origins, we plot our own destinies, and we do this all completely from any higher authority or or greater power. But the parable doesn't end there with the, ruler, uh, with the tenants ruling the vineyard. Three things will happen. Firstly, the father will destroy those tenants. Secondly, he will give the vineyard to others. And most assume that Jesus is referring to the way that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. The third point comes from Jesus' quotation of Psalm 118 at the end of the parable. At the close of the parable, one might conclude that the father has perhaps even foolishly, lost his only son. Yes, the son will be rejected, but as the psalm tells us, this was the Lord's doing. This was preordained. This was part of the plan. And though he has been rejected, ultimately he will be glorified. He will be the cornerstone, and it will be marvellous in our eyes.
the authority of Jesus has triumphed even over his death. What then is the conclusion to all this? Jesus enters Jerusalem and his authority comes under attack. And no less today is the authority of Christ questioned. When the doubters attack it, know that the evidence has been presented, the verdict is in. They can question it and doubt it as much as they like, just like Rene Descartes questioned the very food that he ate and the air that he breathed. But you, you will stand strong behind him who has been revealed by heaven to be the Son of God. And the authority of Jesus will not be shaken by those who erect the barricade of doubt and disbelief, a barricade of ignorance. Jesus confronts the Sadducees who robe themselves in religion but who do not know the power of God. And so they rob God of his potency. You, you must stand in the truth. Neither science nor philosophy can explain the origin of the universe, the beginning of life, or the origin of species. That's a big statement. I'm happy to talk about it later. Um, but the pinnacle of modern thought has not been able to explain us. Why would we let modern thought dictate what our almighty God can and cannot do? When you lose sight of an omnipotent, sorry, uh, omnipotent, creating, miracle-working God, you lose sight of God. The wise guy who lords science and diminishes God as if the two were mutually exclusive, they end up with a weak, pathetic God that bears no semblance to the God of the Bible. The authority of Jesus will not be constrained by our finite categories of comprehension and to come under his reign you must accept both his revelation the scriptures and his power jesus confronts the pharisees and the herodians his authority cannot be harnessed by men for men rather his authority is complete over men his authority extends to you your very self because you belong to him and finally though the world tries to rebel against the authority of jesus unwilling to relinquish their autonomy, though at many times it seems as though the world is successful, yet the authority of Jesus, the Son of God, is enduring. Though his authority was not accepted in the temple courts that day, though he would later be mocked and ridiculed and then even killed, yet the authority of God, the authority of Jesus is enduring and the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. So we stand under his authority. It seems presently foolish. It is mocked, it is ridiculed, and yet you know it's truth. You know that the authority of Jesus triumphs over this world, triumphs even over the grave, and one day we will reign with him. Let us close in prayer. God eternal and almighty, we come before your throne, we place ourselves under your authority, we desire to submit to your rule. The world derides and rejects you, but we know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life, the very Son of God. We pray for those who hide behind doubt. We pray for those who retreat, unable to comprehend your power, 
We pray for a working of your sovereign power that can draw sinners to yourself. We pray for all those who foolishly cherish their independence above your blessing and favour. We pray that you might expand our love and our gospel witness to them. And we pray for ourselves, so often stiff-necked, slow to bow, unwilling to submit. Forgive us, we ask. Patiently bear with us. Transform us towards obedience and submission, we pray. Amen.